Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss the psychedelic LSD. We do a brief perusal of the history of this medicine, explore its therapeutic uses, and talk about its influence on art, science, and creative thinking over the last 80 years or so. Many thanks to those of you who have left us reviews on platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and or commented on our YouTube videos. These things make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, so I really appreciate it. Uh, If you would be so kind, please share this episode or any other of your favorite episodes with people who you think might be interested. That helps us spread the good word. Now I bring you our conversation about LSD. The famous Swiss chemist, Albert Hoffman, said of his first psychedelic experience, it may have been a first psychedelic experience, but certainly his first LSD experience. A lot of things, but this is one that stands out to me. This was after he dosed himself with approximately 250 micrograms of LSD. Little by little, I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colors and the plays of shapes that persisted behind my closed eyes. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me, alternating, variegated, opening and then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in colored fountains, rearranging and hybridizing themselves in constant flux. This was a description of what is now referred to as Bicycle Day. Bicycle Day, April 19th, right before 420. Yeah, also my father's birthday, ironically. Cool, cool. I don't know how ironic that is, but it is... (laughs) Is it ironic? It's, it makes it easy for me to remember Bicycle Day. Yeah. Would he say it's ironic? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> My dad would have been, let's see, uh, like nine years old? No. Yeah. In 1943. Not 43. I was looking at 1938 when he first synthesized LSD. Okay. So my dad was born in 1929. Yeah. The Bicycle Day is commemorated based on that 1943 when he took his bicycle trip. Right. Yeah, because it sat on the shelf there in his lab for, for a hot minute. When he had sort of accidentally dosed himself, he'd like it absorbed through his fingertips and it wasn't super pleasant. If I remember yeah, right. yeah, maybe a few days before. And then he's like, okay, I'm going in 250 micrograms. Lab assistant, you trip sit me, please. They didn't even call it trip sitting then. But, and it yeah. started out unpleasant, if I remember right. Like that's one of the reasons why he got on his bike and didn't want to be transported home any other way. Um, yeah. But did his did his assistant ride home with him? Yeah, yeah, followed him home on bike. <laughs> so it it's interesting because as I've perused the old LSD literature, because there was a lot from back then, mm-hmm. in the 40s, 50s, before it became illegal in the 60s, um, it talks about the arc of the experience. I mean, there has not been a study done in the U.S. for decades, mm-hmm. right? Um although we are doing one, we'll talk about that. Right. Um, but the literature back then described this experience with the come up, they didn't really call it that, but having the psychosomatic discomfort. And then at the end of this phase one, there'd be like a wave energy. And then you get into that kaleidoscopic hallucination phase you just described in the Hoffman quote. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you're riding the wave of it into this like rebirth, insight, renewal, um, beautiful, expansive ending. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's and similar, I think, to other psychedelics that act on similar receptors, like the five H two A serotonin receptor, but but has its own signature. I'm think I, I like to think of the Alex Gray artwork. You know, when I when I see the the quote about variegated colors alternating opening and closing themselves in circles and spirals, kind of that um, like not quite the sacred geometry you might see with DMT, but similar mm-hmm. uh, eyes everywhere, the boiling, um, and the sin. Well, I guess we can talk more about exactly what people experience on LSD, but yeah, there's sort of this common signature. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, too bad we missed Albert Hoffman's hundredth birthday party, by the way. That was, uh, did you see it on how to change your mind? Uh-uh. The Netflix. I haven't seen it yet. LSD episode. They have some video footage from his hundred year, birthday party <laughs> in Switzerland, um, where I don't know, a thousand people or more attended. It was pretty cool. I wonder how many of them were under the influence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's another <laughs> interesting thing. What's your, what's your guess on the percent of the U S population who has tried LSD above age 12? Currently, um, this includes people who survived the sixties, I would guess. Well, I don't know how recent the data is. I can't remember the reference probably a few years old. Yeah. Yeah, 9%. 9. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, 25 million or so people. That's a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's it's more than you might guess with some of the reactions you still get when you talk about LSD. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's mixed reviews, but there are still some people influenced by those old ads uh, or the old uh, scare tactics by the war on drugs campaign, such as, um, well, there's like a National Enquirer headline that said, Woman gives birth to frog after taking LSD. <laughs> That's, I think, the best one I've seen. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I feel bad for the woman, but yeah, I mean, there were there was a lot of hysteria back when it was in the 60s, back when it was made illegal, you know, and a lot of people blame that on the counterculture movement spurred on by Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert. Uh, but this idea that LSD would make you go crazy irreversibly or murder people or peel your skin off or jump out of windows... And I, you know, I think uh, Tim Leary has gotten a bad rap and sure he was a little overzealous, but I think by far it's spurred by the response to the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, the, the political climate in America at the time was um, anti-communist. We need to be the best uh, war military engine out there to be the best in the world. And that was kind of palpable in, in the conservative culture, the politics. And then when you had people um, holding those signs saying, drop acid, not bombs, right. and having these awakenings of, I don't want to be sent to Vietnam because my birthday falls on an odd month or whatever, and then have to shoot people. Right. You know? Yeah, the, the, the turn on, tune in, and, and the drop out part of that famous phrase, I think, scared the powers that be mm-hmm. and was fueling a lot of counterculture stuff, not just the Vietnam War things, but women's liberation, civil rights, a lot that the establishment wasn't a big fan of. Yeah, because you even had, uh, was it Bobby Kennedy, like Secretary of State back then, who said something like, wait a second, this drug that you just made illegal six months ago you were saying was a wonder drug and the government funded 12 studies on it for alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Like this is probably, 
one of the biggest uh, conspiracies in science ever, mm. like, or one of the biggest like tragedies, um, similar to like the Bush administration banning embryonic stem cell re research, but that was brief. Mm -hmm. um, but the the LSD research and clinical use going away drastically for 25 years is kind of mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. And my mind, being boggled, wonders what could we have accomplished? Like what kind of progress mm -hmm. could we have made as a society, yeah. just as the, the collective zeitgeist, how it would have been different, but also in psychiatric therapeutics like how many people <laughs> who could we have saved from ptsd anxiety suicide addiction if this research mm -hmm. had been allowed to continue we're grateful to be a part of the psychedelic renaissance but man yeah when you think about what could have been accomplished you know it gets personal too because of the alcoholism piece um there were a thousand papers written on lsd in the 40s 50s 60s um and like i said 12 studies funded but if you think about the one of the big uses back then was alcoholism, especially in Canada. Um, Humphrey Osmond, who was Albert Hoffer, were some of the biggest researchers. But um, my grandmother died of alcoholism, mm. and a hundred million people have died of alcoholism. And LSD was shown to maybe double um, response rates or outcomes of treatment as usual. Uh, and, you know, like we could talk about, even the founder of AA was helped uh, drastically by LSD. So it is a tragedy that, and many lives have been lost uh, because of that. And a lot of these results were sometimes after a single dose. Yeah. And people like to talk about their, uh, like to express their frustration, if not hatred for the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and it not being entirely profitable to have a medicine that's that effective, right? That's <laughs> effective after a single dose. Um, yeah. And I, like, I take a stance of not really blaming the pharmaceutical industry back then. I mean, it was Sandoz who was giving the stuff away for free, yeah. a pharma company. Um, you know, I get it that that's a factor in in certain things like this, but I don't really consider it the driving force. Like I think it was, you know, the Vietnam War politics and uh, the government looking for a way to spin it to make this Schedule One list and put it on it, among other things, and just take it away yeah. because people were behaving badly. They were, th there was going to be, you know, political unrest um, against this dominating we're sending you to war um stance yeah. yeah you know generally i am very cautious around conspiratorial thinking yeah. and how easy it is to get captured by conspiratorial yeah, thinking same. uh but man when you look at the history it is difficult not to see some of what appears to be the motives by the the people at the top <laughs> to suppress the people at the bottom yeah, so then you had the government doing this war on drugs campaign this is your brain on drugs um you know, an egg in a frying pan kind right. of thing. But then the news outlets just spun it into those like frog headlines mm -hmm. or took it absolutely crazy from there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts, like you said, to think about what we could have learned too. Uh, not just lives that could have been saved, but what we could understand about the mind and behavior. Yeah, yeah what we could have learned about the mind, about behavior, and about... Uh, and 
you know, you, I can imagine a lot of new psychedelic developments, like psychedelic compounds mm-hmm. being discovered, or at least the ones that were discovered by people like the Shulgans tested, right? But all that ground yeah. to a halt because of this. Yeah. Uh, so there's, you read uh, a quote from Albert Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a letter he wrote to Steve Jobs that I want to read because I like it. It yeah. says, Dear Mr. Steve Jobs, hello from Albert Hoffman. I understand from media accounts that you feel LSD helped you creatively in your development of Apple computers and your personal spiritual quest. I'm interested in learning more about how LSD was useful to you. I'm writing now, shortly after my 101st birthday, to request that you support Swiss psychiatrist Dr. Peter Gasser, Mm -hmm. the one who uh, trained us in LSD therapy on Zoom recently, right? Right, yeah. Uh, proposed study of LSD-assisted psychotherapy in subjects with anxiety associated with life-threatening illness. This will become the first LSD-assisted psychotherapy study in over 35 years. I hope you will help in the transformation of my problem child into a wonder child. Sincerely, A. Hoffman. Wow. That's incredible. And I just, in preparing for this episode, found a, a study by Gasser published in 2014 on this very thing, LSD for end of life anxiety, and yeah. very very positive results. Yeah, it it was, and then a f- uh, two three years later, Carhart Harris and David Nutt and colleagues did the first ever neuroimaging study of LSD, which mm. was which was pretty cool, showing the brain lit up uh, on the substance with that like unconstrained network connectivity, like the ability to connect. Uh, tracks in the brain and thoughts and ideas that you wouldn't otherwise be able to. Which, you know, you can extrapolate from that imaging data and guess that maybe that's why people claim to be more creative on LSD or to have mm-hmm. creative insights. You know, there's this, it's debated, but there's the the story that, uh, is it Crick? The the one who... Francis Crick. Francis yeah. Crick came up with the double helix um, structure of DNA. I think it's well, well supported that this was during the legal time of LSD use. Mm. Um, and one of the well-known um, potential benefits, like they said, You're, sure, use it in psychotherapy, use it in insight, creativity, exploration. Um, but the two of the greatest ever Nobel Prizes um, came from uh, someone under the influence of L- LSD assisting their creativity. It was, uh, the other one was um, Carrie M. Mullen Mullis, uh, who discovered polymerase chain reaction, PCR. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And so you see, uh, just anecdotally, since psychedelics Mm -hmm. have become, found their way back into the mainstream, uh, people in places like Silicon Valley or Austin or these hubs for creativity, uh, using LSD and other psychedelics to help motivate creativity. Uh, As we talk about the possible benefits I just have my, <laughs> my disclaimer alert popped disclaimer in my brain, time. Uh, that we do not condone or endorse the use of illegal substances. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Mm-hmm. But yeah, really, really fascinating that people in are using it either in microdose format or or microdose or <laughs> macrodose mm-hmm. format to uh, to sort of fertilize the garden bed of creativity. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that brain imaging study when talking about it after I heard David Nutt uh, 
psychiatrist, neuropsychopharmacologist, brilliant individual in the psychedelic space. He gave this analogy I really liked of, uh, it's like um, your brain is this orchestra and on LSD, there's no conductor anymore. Mm. And they're just playing, it's a free for all of beautiful music. It's kind of like um, without LSD, when our default mode network is in charge, um, you follow the rules, and then when that's relaxed, you can improv. Mm, cerebral jazz. Yeah. Jazz lab band. Yeah. I love that. So this this concept of the default mode we've talked about a lot on the podcast. You'll see it referenced a lot when discussing psychedelics, this interconnected network of brain regions that we think is the seat of the ego, of the conductor, this mm-hmm. the, the me network. And it's what tends to go quiet when you're meditating uh, if you achieve a certain state in meditation, but also with psychedelics or when you're in flow states. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we suspect that it has something to do with not only creativity, but also the therapeutic benefit of medicines like LSD. That mm-hmm. this this ego disillusionment, the, the dissolving of sense of self and the subsequent joining with the universe or the earth or cosmic love or God or source or whatever it is, yeah. is a lot of what helps people in these end of life studies, but also helps our run-of-the-mill mental health clients. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in the early, early days of LSD research, both uh, like those psychiatrists in Canada we mentioned and even uh, the founder of AA, Bill Wilson, Wilson, um, thought that uh, it might be the terror of the experience that would bring about change in Mm -hmm. alcoholism or lead to recovery, but then... They later corrected that after their own experiences and observing it so many that it's the insight, not the terror. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, can you get the insight without the terror? Sure. Excuse me. I think the answer is yes. But, uh, you know, we have a study that we're going to be doing a clinical trial on using LSD for the treatment of generalized anxiety disorder. And I wonder if, you know, certainly all the things we're talking about can be helpful, but a lot of times with anxiety, one of the things that helps a lot is confronting what is terrifying and getting on the other side of it, right? Mm -hmm. What perpetuates the anxiety is rebounding off of the scary thing and avoiding. In in the act, we call it experiential avoidance, acceptance and commitment therapy. This tendency to get emotionally aroused, anxious, and then run away in order to calm down. And that reinforces this pattern of running away, which reinforces also the scariness of the thing that you're anxious about. And LSD can be a very, very challenging experience. Mm-hmm. Because we are wired for risk avoidance, like evolutionarily wired to support survival by detecting threats and right. avoiding them. And that can run amok or get into hyperdrive, especially these days. Yeah. So a psychedelic experience, like with LSD, that dissolves that sense of self, it's hard to get really, really anxious uh, about a, how a thing might affect the self if you have no reference for self. The experience of self-dissolving can be anxiety-provoking in and of itself. Um, so it's not like it's just this unmitigated <laughs> bliss, bliss state. Yeah. But I think, again, this is all testable, and I hope we can test it eventually. But I, I, I wonder if the, the crucible experience on a psychedelic, like Wilson wondered, I also wonder if that can, can also be a therapeutic, have a therapeutic effect. Mm-hmm. I love how Aldous Huxley puts it, although 
I think in this quote, he was writing about mescaline, mm -hmm. but mescaline actually isn't that far off chemically from LSD, but he said something like, my brain was released mm. and something was constraining my mind. It must be my brain. Mm. And, you know, the brain exists to kind of focus the mind and therefore kind of constrain it in a certain way. And if we can relax that intermittently, um, we can open up new possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of all kinds of tangents now, but where, where is the mind? What is the brain and its relationship to the mind? Are we more than just a brain? Anyway, not to go off on those tangents. Tangents. Um, you mentioned mescaline being chemically similar to LSD. I've heard you call LSD a promiscuous molecule. Why, why is it referred to as a promiscuous molecule? Mm. Well, because it hits more receptors than something like DMT or psilocybin, psilocin, meaning, yes, it hits the 5-HD2A, but that's not the only thing it does. Mm -hmm. um, it's hitting other serotonergic and other receptors. And, you know, in fact, um, that's not the only way LSD works. It's not just a 5-HD2A medicine. Like, there's increasing cerebral blood flow in certain areas. There's uh, increased electrical activity. There's the the network, the like entropic brain, the disruption of uh, network connectivity that comes about from the experience. I've also read that it it uh, is it an agonist antagonist of the dopamine, some dopamine receptors as well. Yeah, yeah. And histamine, adrenaline, like a lot of these different. Yeah, promiscuous. Even though those are more the minor effects, mm. but. It kind of makes sense if you look at the LSD experience or the signature of it. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on, um, both somatically, both like mentally and uh, perceptually and spiritually. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the perceptual changes are really interesting. And again, these are sometimes pretty common, sometimes common. That's a funny combination of words <laughs> uh, with psychedelic experiences, but synesthesia. So this... Yeah. This experience where you, you know, see sounds or taste colors mm -hmm. makes me think more about that creativity discussion we had a few minutes ago. Like, uh, yeah, that's creative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think some of the most creative art artists are people who have that ability. You could call it an ability. It might be a curse mm -hmm. in some ways um, to make connections where neurotypical folks wouldn't be able to. Yeah. It's the creative genius. It's the, uh, even the the crazy shaman, yeah, or the tortured like, artist kind of thing. Yeah, those who are um, closer to that chaos and less constrained by the day to day rules mm -hmm. of the default world. You know? I, I've thought of artists like that as as people who uh, they visit the chaos and bring back the gems for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Artists, you know, visual artists, musical artists, literary artists, man. I love to listen to books on audio. I almost said tape. We don't have tapes anymore. But <laughs> books on tape. On tape. Yeah. Um, especially when the narrator is really, really good, when they perform the book instead of just read the book. Uh, because for me, it really brings another mm -hmm. creative layer to what a really, really good author oh, or storyteller yeah. can, can provide. And I was listening to this sort of gritty swords and shields type fantasy series uh, mm -hmm. performed by this guy named, I think Peter Klein is his name, not the author, but the, the actual narrator. And it was, it blew my mind. That's I was cool. just transported to this place. 
So yeah, I'm so grateful for the 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 quote unquote uh, tortured artists because yeah. of what they can bring back from this altered cognitive mm. realm for us. Mad genius. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, how cool is it that we can tap into that via psychedelic medicine somewhat? Mm-hmm. You know, there are these <laughs> there are these things I've seen on Reddit where. Um, someone will take different substances and draw a self-portrait on each one. They're just fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I don't know, I wish I could remember this artist's name, but uh, this person did the same, it was a profile, I think I showed you some pictures of this, but yeah. a profile style piece of artwork, um, but patterned after each different psychedelic that this artist had tried. Oh, yeah. So it was like, here. here is what mushrooms look like in this style. Here oh, yeah, is what that cannabis cool. looks like in this style. I thought it was really awesome. Hmm. Well, maybe we should chat about some LSD dosage pharmacology while we're on the topic. Right. Um, like what, what is a microdose, a hydrodose, a therapeutic dose, mm-hmm. a psycholytic dose, and all that jazz. Yeah. So uh, you're the real doctor. Maybe you ought to handle this one. I know that uh, uh, it's usually measured in micrograms as opposed to mm-hmm. grams. You don't want to be doing grams of LSD or milligrams <laughs> even. Yeah. Um, so... Five to 10 micrograms is thought to be the threshold, the perceptual threshold. And by many people's definition, like Fadiman, of microdosing, that would be a sub-perceptual dose. So someone might microdose on 10 micrograms of LSD, as an example. If they take 20, they're likely to feel it. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people do microdose and aim for the perceptual, the subtle perceptual changes in creativity, perhaps. Again, nothing we can condone, but we're certainly commenting on it as it's uh, more and more part of the culture. Yeah, and these are things that have been reported by people who have experimented, you know, with an N of one on these uh, these protocols. You could call them microdosing protocols. Uh, and you know, there's different ways that they these people tend to approach it. Whether you're doing it every day or every four days or something like that, yeah. because you do develop a tolerance. You can develop a tolerance. Yeah, that's another unique thing to LSD. Like we talked about in our DMT episode, DMT does not have a tolerance that develops like LSD does. Mm-hmm. Um, someone could be uh, taking DMT on a daily basis and the effects are not going to diminish. Like every effect is different, of course, but with uh, LSD, tolerance develops rapidly and then dis- dissipates rapidly, usually rapidly, like two to three days of consistent use. Um, and it is a little different for everyone, and it is dose-dependent. Um, so when you hear stories like Ram Dass in his book, Being Ram Dass, uh, he tells stories about how he took LSD for like two weeks straight. Mm. <laughs> he was probably taking whopping doses, but the the effects probably did um, change and diminish over that time period too. Make that, a little <laughs> aside, it makes me think of that story where he gave Maharaji the LSD and it oh, just yeah. apparently didn't even phase him. I wonder if secretly Maharaji was like a huge LSD head and he <laughs> <laughs> had developed this incredible tolerance. He'd done it 10 days in a row. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is a funny story because he's like, give me some of that yogi medicine. And, and Ram Das thought he was talking about, I don't know, Tylenol or something. <laughs> like, what does he want? He's asking the, the other guy there, the interpreter is like, oh... LSD. So he hesitantly like gets it out and Maharaji like more, more. And he gives him, I don't know, 400 micrograms or something. Mm-hmm. And he really watched that to see if he took it. 
And then he was like bracing himself. He's like, oh no, did I just kill my guru by mm-hmm. giving him a whopping dose? Um, and uh, Maharaji just kind of sat there. Um, but, <laughs> and like the uh, enlightened master he was and probably just metabolized it, like mm-hmm. flowed through the experience with his uh, form and formless superpowers. Didn't he? Didn't he tease Ramdas a bit though? Like, didn't he? Uh, yeah. Ri- like writhe around or whatever to. Yeah, he'd like uh, start jerking or mm-hmm. doing something weird under his blanket, <laughs> and then uh, and then just you know show that he was kidding. Right. But... So four hundred micrograms, probably twice what the the psychedelic dose would be that yeah. most people would take. So psycholytic dose, like meaning mind loosening and using more in a talk session would be 50 to 150 micrograms, uh, 200 and up, 200 to 500 micrograms are where most of those studies in the 40s, 50s um, landed. Mm-hmm. And where most of the studies, yeah, like, like you were saying now, are landing maybe in the 200 microgram dose range. Um, but you know what's interesting, just as a little fun fact, um, if you give LSD IV, um, 75 micrograms IV is equivalent to a tab, a capsule of 100 micrograms. So there's not that much difference, say 75% um, less of a dose needed to get that effect if you're giving IV. If you give psilocybin or psilocin IV, it's a tenfold difference compared to oral. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's just the like the the neuropharmacology of how these things are absorbed, the bioavailability, how they their receptor occupancy profiles. I'm just spewing out psychopharm garbage, well, so I don't have to facts. really answer. <laughs> we, we probably don't really know the answer, but yeah. And speaking of dosage, I think you know LSD is typically used nowadays. Um, on blotter paper, but I mean, it, there are lots of other ways it has been used, drops, crystalline form, uh, mm-hmm. you just mentioned IV injection, those kinds of things. Um, again, we don't condone illicit use of illicit substances, um, but in the interest of harm reduction, mm-hmm. test your stuff. Yeah. Uh, LSD has been known to be contaminated, not as much as maybe other drugs you might get in the black market, but it can be. Yeah, when we were at the Delic conference last fall, mm-hmm. winter, whenever it was, um, the Dance Safe nonprofit was there with a booth, and they were selling test kits where you could get a little test kit that would test a few things, or you could get an expansive one that would test all sorts of different substances. Although that tells you presence or absence of things, like mm-hmm. what it is or what it isn't, um, not dosage. Right, right. Yeah, and I've heard people say that uh, when you get, you know, when, when people obtain these blotter papers with squares on them, uh, you, you you might assume that the dosage is the same across the paper, but it might not be, right? You think that the LSD is saturated each square exactly the same, but it might not. Yeah, uh, and that's something else that was happening in the 50s when uh, Sandoz was sending around free LSD to like psychiatrists, psychotherapists, uh, researchers saying, study it, use it in, in therapy. But then uh, people at the same time were making bathtub LSD. Mm. And um, because not everyone could just 
get it free from Sandoz, right. you know, even though it's pretty cool. I think a pretty interesting move and pretty cool in my opinion that they were doing that. Like they saw this potential, but they didn't know exactly what it could or would become. Right. Um, I mean, pretty cool in hindsight, who knows what led to its temporary demise yeah, or dark yeah. ages. Yeah. Interesting that in the dark ages, it was continuing, you know, the the government continued to use it. There's that infamous MK Ultra program, oh, CIA yeah. and MI6 using, you know, dosing people uh, unbeknownst to, the, to them to play around with whether or not LSD could be a truth serum or they could use it for mind control, mm-hmm. you know, giving it to politicians and students and prostitutes and uh, their enemies. Wild stuff. Yeah, it is wild. And... Uh, and then here it comes back to research in the United States. Uh, I mean, my Schedule One license for LSD is in the hands of the local DEA office right now. Mm. Yeah. And how much can we say about the clinical trial? I think we've, we've it's been announced. We've talked about it on the podcast before, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, you know, for the listeners, we do have to be careful uh, as part of a public company. Um, in what we disclose, if we disclose something, uh, it needs to be disclosed fairly and broadly and everything, right? Um, and also the pharmaceutical companies, the nonprofit drug development companies, uh, all those we work with have their own confidentiality. But but yes, we did do a formal press release announcing our participation in MindMed's LSD study for generalized anxiety disorder. And... Uh, that was pretty cool, like we were saying about the investigator meeting, to be, it felt like a monumental occasion <laughs> uh, to be part of the first study coming back to the U.S. It was really special. It was special to, to see Peter Gasser, you know, zoom in over the teleprompter uh, and show us the room that he's done all this LSD research in. Yeah. And uh, give us some instruction on how to how to help clients through the experience and how to handle what can be sometimes very very challenging experiences. Um, that's one of the really nice things about being part of this the psychedelic movement now on the medical yeah. side and science side is how much careful concern and deliberateness and scientific mm-hmm. rigor is um, is being employed as we approach psychedelic medicines this time around. Yeah. We talked about dosages. There's probably some other variables we should discuss too that can affect the experience. Talked about them a lot on the podcast. Uh, people familiar with psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy know about them, but mm-hmm. those are your mindset, or what's referred to as the set and the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, like with all psychedelic medicines and you know life in general, the attitude that you bring to them can have a profound effect on the trajectory and uh, type of experience you have. Yeah, because these things are, like Stan Groff said, non-specific amplifiers of what's in your subconscious. So, you go you go in extra anxious; it's just going to blow it up. Mm-hmm. So, whatever you can do to calm the nervous system and bring to front and center your attention the more positive things that you're wanting to work on or work with. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and if you need to do really hard work in the context of a LSD assisted psychotherapy session, hard work can be can be done. That could mean confronting really really difficult things, like with trauma, for example, yeah. or the reasons why you have an addiction. If this is treatment for something like alcohol use disorder, and so that could be very difficult. But when you're mm-hmm. guided, or when your experience is being facilitated by 
therapist, a coach, somebody who's, you know, competent to do such work, then um, you can navigate those really difficult experiences and come out on the other side having improved as a result of that navigation. So mm -hmm. it's not that you are set and the setting will produce a completely euphoric experience for the 12 hours or so that you're on LSD. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that. But the mindset, the intention that you have for the experience and those variables of the setting do affect the trip. That's a good point because I, even though the research hasn't been done like it has in psilocybin, I think the same applies that, uh, you know, if you have a mystical experience and some kind of emotional breakthrough or face some challenge, then they're, you're more likely to have lasting positive change from it. Mm -hmm. But I, I think part of this set and setting work and preparation work is about getting through those fears, those common, maybe even core fears that show up often and can be distracting from your ability to surrender. Mm. Like the fear of dying, the fear that it's never going to end, the fear that you're going crazy. Those right. I see as the three most common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you were coaching somebody or you, this was a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy session and somebody was afraid that they had lost their mind, right? There's a Carhart-Harris study where people report, uh, I think it's like psychotic symptoms inventory or something like that. I mean, they do have psychotic-like symptoms while they're on LSD. So as you stated, this experience of, oh my God, I've lost my mind, I'm never coming back. What might you say to a person? How might you help them? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm just remembering in... Uh that perusal of some of the old LSD psychotherapy manuals, there was one um, answer to that question that I kind of liked where it said, um, you know, it offered this cue. Like, you might tell the person that there's, there's no increased risk of being high on LSD a week later than there is if you were to take alcohol or caffeine and worry about being high on alcohol or caffeine a week later. Mm -hmm. um, but just, I guess their point is um, just some reassurance and ground control, because that's a common recommendation is having someone there who's not on the medicine and even not having too big of groups. Like I've seen some um, recommendations say no more than five people because it could just be distracting mm -hmm. or energy amplifying. But, but yeah, I think in response to that, I'll just offer my, my best calm abiding presence with uh, reassurance as needed that uh, everything's going to be okay. This is, uh, you know, this is how the experience goes, like we talked about, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it will, it will end, it will wind down and the sun's going to come up tomorrow and we will be okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we coach our clinicians who do ketamine assisted therapy to, to say very similar things to our ketamine clients who might have a very challenging moment yeah. in their ketamine experience to reassure them, remind them they're on a medicine, uh, you know, revisit those breathing or other grounding exercises that you've done during the preparation sessions. Yeah. Uh, in, in the spirit of surrender though, and I've experimented with this a little bit with some of my ketamine clients, um, if they feel like they're losing it, I will help them ground remind them that they're safe, that I'm, I'm here with them no matter where they go, mm -hmm. and to go ahead, right? If you see a door, open it. If you see a staircase, go down or up it. If you feel like mm -hmm. you're going to die, go right ahead. <laughs> if you yeah. feel like you're losing yeah. your mind, let it go and see what's on the other side of surrender. Yeah, get curious about it. Go with the flow. 
Um, Again, in the vessel that safety creates. Mm-hmm. I'm not encouraging yeah. somebody to to completely, you know, go insane, quite literally. I'm encouraging them to, as you say, to get curious about why that's showing up for them in this vessel of safety and sail through it like that. Yeah. Yeah, because there are risks to these substances, yeah. especially if used in, um, you know, poorly controlled settings <laughs> and without the support and the preparation or the monitoring. Um, I've even seen it, like when I used to do psych consults in ERs, uh, I remember having a client who took LSD, a young client, like they may have even been a, like a late teen, early adult um, they weren't planning on this. They took a high dose and um, in a strange setting of a basement party and they like broke through the window to exit the basement and run, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they were, they were okay. It wore off and the abrasions were very minor. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it's important to highlight that, uh, you know, while extremely safe and not deserving to be on the Schedule 1 list, in my opinion, there are also risks. Right. Um, like LSD increases your heart rate and blood pressure f- 5, 10 points or so. Your temperature goes up a half a degree Celsius, uh, for example. Um, if you're, you know, if you're on psych meds, that's another thing worth mentioning maybe, um, even though it's not well characterized yet, if you're on lithium or a tricyclic antidepressant, the experience might be enhanced. Mm -hmm. If you're on an MAOI or an SSRI, might be diminished, um, things like that. Right. Yeah, I have a few of my clients, I I call them uh, sort of backyard shaman refugees, where (laughs) they've gone to to people they knew through connections that claim that they're psychedelic guides and they have not positive experiences and they find their way to me to, to, for damage control. So again, these are, these are not, these, these experiences are not unmitigated goods. They're, they can go sideways. Yep. Yep. But, uh, in general, like we've said before, like this whole psychedelic renaissance does bring me a lot of hope Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, collectively, um, as we're able to access this more and more, there's not just healing, uh, to be found in the kind of the mental health conditions, but also consciousness, expansion, creativity, new insights, um, leading to like, you know, betterment of humanity. Yeah. That's why I am a fan of, of, uh, legalization across the board. Frankly, I mean, I, I am really excited for using these medicines like LSD in the context of psychotherapy, but I'm a, I'm a liberated consciousness fan. Um, and certainly there should be regulations and there should be education. It's part of why we do this podcast is yep. <laughs> harm reduction and ed- education. Um, but yeah, I would love for it to not be simply contained in the clinical world because then those people who might not meet a diagnostic like diagnostic criteria for mental illness wouldn't necessarily have access to the creativity or consciousness or spiritual expanding properties of something like LSD. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Not a ton of faith in the federal <laughs> government, but well, it's it's happening to be honest. Um well, earlier today I looked at a map on the of the U.S. and psilocybin legislation, mm-hmm. where the West Coast is clearly um, 
leading the pack in terms of any kind of positive change. But, but if, if you were to ask me five years ago, you know, what would happen with psychedelic legislation, um, I would not have predicted this level of, or this rate of progress, right. even though it feels slow in the moment. True. And we just got word that, uh, at least I saw a headline about the Biden administration uh, talking about getting psychedelic-assisted therapies approved in the next couple of years federally. So, Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Turning the problem child into a wonder child. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Well, good good chatting with you. Fun medicine to talk about. As always. Thanks, Reed. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.